I cannot believe you did not know the Golden Globes are not affiliated with the HFPA now, which like doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, like I I'm kind of shocked with myself. I'm embarrassed that I was not following <laughs> this like Hollywood insidery arcana a little better. Uh, especially after my history of ranting against the HFPA, an organization that actually I know. has done nothing to me. I just, you know. I, I thought you would have thrown a party or something yeah, to celebrate. I, you know, I, I've been baffled by them for a long time. They're kind of arbitrary uh, way that they divide up their awards, at least in comparison with the Oscars. Not that the Oscars don't have a problem. Though. No, they absolutely do. Um, you know, you could you could write whole books about how complicated their voting processes are and how archaic it is. How archaic yeah. it is. How much of a popularity contest it is. How the you know how much uh, studios spend on advertising just to get in the conversation. I mean, it's it's this whole thing, and it's it's completely divorced from what the average person on the street thinks of the Oscars or the awards in general. Like they think that, um, that there's some aspect of merit to it, which is only there. Like, I don't know. It's like 20% merit, 80% <laughs> uh, political Machiavellian type stuff. The golden globes are always fun. Cause the people who attend it get to all be hammered and, and they get to drink and stuff. Right. Yeah. I guess that is one, one nice aspect. Yeah. And now there's like an actual serious to, to it like i don't watch award shows normally but i don't know if you saw the clip of jennifer lawrence when they panned to her when they were doing the nominations did you see that no is that they're reading out the the nominees to a particular category yeah okay yeah yeah that's right so she was up for best actress in a comedy for um no hard feelings oh okay as the camera pans to her and then she mouths to the camera if i don't win i'm leaving (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) And, and i thought that was just like the funniest part of the night um, because the guy who hosted it was awful. Yeah, I heard bad, bad reviews about his stuff. And, you know, then he tried. I saw the Taylor Swift joke and I was like, oh, my God, that's horrible. And then he had a joke about Oppenheimer and Barbie. Yes. That was quite misogynistic. Yeah. <laughs> when, like, that's exactly the kind of joke you can't make right now. And you shouldn't anyway. Because it's so low, like, really low hanging fruit. And it's just really not that funny anyway. Yeah, it has, it, it shows, like... I don't know. It's the kind of thing that you would have seen in an Oscars broadcast like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And it just... On that note, did you hear what Kevin Hart said? He said he's never going to host the Academy Awards ever again because it's not a safe place for comedians. Oh. Well, maybe not safe place, but like they, they can't make the same jokes that they used to. I mean, yeah, that there's there's an element of truth to what he's saying. I I don't I don't agree that it's it's not a safe place for comedians. I think that like they're... Like the dis- the discourse around like what's safe and what's not for comedians to say is so like fraught these days. Well, I think the issue is more that a lot of these jokes are so lowbrow and terrible. There's no sort of wit or intelligence to them. I think that's what people sort of have pushed back against. I don't know. They, these award shows uh, walk a fine line between being there to celebrate the, the movies or the TV shows that are in contention against each other, but then also deflate some of the egos and the pretensions. And it's a very, very fine line to walk. Like very few people get it right. Um, yeah. Fair enough. Everyone argues about like, you know, who had, who had a good monologue, who had, uh, who had uh, uh, the best patter in between categories or whatever. And I seem to remember last year's show was pretty safe. 
and not a whole lot happened. But then that's coming on the the tail of the show before that being completely explosive and violence fueled. So <laughs> what violence fueled? What happened? Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. Oh, right. You know that was definitely so, a low point. Yeah. So you know you really never know what you're going to get. Um, if it's going to be a moment that everyone's going to talk about the next day, or if it's just going to be you know. But one thing everyone agrees on is that they wish the show would go faster and. Everyone has different ideas about, um, you know, what pieces actually needed to be in there and which pieces didn't. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so we'll see what what happens with the Golden Globes. I'm actually my my interest is now peaked um, to maybe pay a bit more attention to them now <laughs> that the they're they're maybe free of some of the shackles of the HFPA nonsense. Oh my god. I I taught some Rob something about the awards industry. I'm so excited. <laughs> Usually you're way more on top of this stuff than I am. Anyway, it's still a couple months to go before the actual uh, awards and, and probably about a month until the actual nominations come out, so uh we shall see. Yeah, we shall. In that case, shall we get going? Yeah, let's get it started. Welcome to the Extra Buttery Podcast. It's a show about movies, TV, anything with a story and actors on a screen, really. Join Jason Chan and Robert Snow's free-flowing conversation with deep dives into characters and plot with the occasional salty opinion. So get your popcorn. I got mine right here. Let's start the show! Welcome to the 122nd episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast. I'm Jason Jen in Vancouver. Joining me is Robert Snow in Toronto. Hello. And in this episode, we're going to talk Godzilla Minus One, Aquaman, The Lost Kingdom, Rebel Moon, and Poor Things. So there's a lot to get to. But let's start with Godzilla Minus One. Godzilla Minus One. So I remember watching this and I texted you. Actually, I watched the trailer and I texted you. And I was like, mm. oh my God, this looks so cool. They even brought back the original Japanese Godzilla theme. This is going to be yeah. so good. And I went to see it and I was like, oh, Rob's got to see this. And yeah. it was really good. Oh, yeah. Was it ever? I mean, I I didn't know this was in production. I, uh, you know, I had heard about Shin Godzilla that came out in 2016. I haven't seen it yet. Um but I wasn't a huge fan. I, I heard the thing about Shin Godzilla, which was Toho's, Toho Studios' first big Godzilla movie in a long time. You know, they had they had taken a break from making Godzilla films and, um, you know, they'd kind of let the folks over at, um, I guess it was Legendary Pictures, uh, handle the Godzilla franchise for a while. And, of course, we've seen a, a, a very um, different type of Godzilla film evolve over there where they've been making a whole interconnected universe now with a show on Apple TV plus and, and other stuff. Um, so the fact that Toho came back to, to make a new film in this franchise from the Japanese point of view was, was interesting. 
Um, and Shin Godzilla, you know, from what I've seen of it, it was set in a more contemporary time period where imagining what would happen if Godzilla came ashore in, you know, mid 2010s Japan. And, you know, people have pointed out that there's a whole lot of um, meeting scenes in it. It's it's very like it's kind of an indictment of uh, bureaucracy in the time of a natural disaster and how people just will waste countless amounts of time um you know, talking about a problem rather than dealing with it. Um, so this movie, Godzilla Minus One, is very different because it takes us back to the origins of the franchise, back to the 1940s, 1950s, uh, in a post-war Japan, which is very much the inspiration for the whole Godzilla franchise, you know, like dealing with the aftermath of uh, both the, the actual nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as well as uh, things like the the catastrophic nuclear test, uh, Castle Bravo, that led to the uh, contamination of Lucky Dragon number seven, the fishing boat that uh, um, some people uh, attach to the actual like inspiration for Godzilla itself. It wasn't so much inspired by the bombings as it was the the nuclear program, the nuclear testing, and the contamination that followed from that. Um, so. Yeah, this this is a movie that really reckons with the with not only the aftermath of using nuclear energy, but also Japan's national identity and like, you know, who they were as a people um, after the war and like reckoning with their militaristic past and uh, what kind of nation they wanted to be after the war. And, you know, there's an aspect of like private citizens banding together to solve a problem as and you know and it's all symbolized by this very obvious threat of Godzilla and yeah i thought it was it was masterfully done yeah i mean i first of all i really like the chubby godzilla design <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you really he kind of he kind of like, waddles eh like he doesn't stomp through the city he kind of waddles through the city yeah. and because his thighs are so huge he just ends up knocking over buildings i thought that was really funny yeah but you're right i think one of the best parts about this movie is that there's actually no real antagonist in this movie like in the American versions or in previous versions, we've always had like, oh, Godzilla versus this or Godzilla versus that, you know. But in this one, he is sort of like an ambivalent sort of creature. Yeah. That just kind of does things. And these people are obviously trying to survive and they're yes. trying to figure out a way to um, save themselves and, and rebuild the country following a, a very horrific war. And it goes back right to the roots of why Godzilla, this creature, was created in the first place. And I mean, it's not a perfect movie by any means, um, but I love the creature design. I love the music. The theme just brings back so many memories. Some of the gripes I had, though, are really minor. I mean, one of the gripes I had was the protagonist annoyed me to no end. Oh, really? I liked him a lot, actually. Did you? And I was kind of like, dude, you need to snap out of it. You know, let's go. (laughs) You know, I I like the quirky characters a bit more. So the ship's captain and his mate, I thought were really hilarious. Um, The crazy scientist. But it was just really awesome to see all the people band together. Because when the Japanese general who kind of leads the whole final mission against Godzilla shows up, I was expecting him to be like a very antagonistic force. But he was he ends up being very reasonable And I thought he was a great character to have in that space. And I don't think any characters were dumb, except maybe the protagonist. But it was in a certain um, way predictable. Like in the final sequence, when he goes to find the engineer, 
uh, who doesn't like him and asks him to build that plane. Yeah. And then the engineer shows him this like one final secret button that he has to press. Yes. Um, before, you know, he drops the bomb on Godzilla, you already knew what was going to happen. Yeah. And I, I think it took away from the dramatic stuff, but I was really curious about how they would keep Godzilla alive because there's no way this is a one-off, right? No. And I mean, like, it's as as like symbolic as the whole thing was of, uh, you know, the, the Japanese national identity, like I was talking mm-hmm. about the threats of nuclear energy you are still dealing with a movie franchise about a kaiju and the mm-hmm. they're not going to let they're not going to let it just uh, be a one and done kind of situation so there's got to be some way you know they there's obviously well, especially a lot of, how good like considering how good this movie is you can't just let it no no and there's and there's a lot of catharsis when they do finally defeat godzilla in that final sequence because he is a he's a scary version of godzilla in this like when he fires his atomic breath it's like a, a literal bomb going off and it has all of those impacts of like a full-on nuke and you're like whoa okay there's there's a real impact when that happens and you're if you if you've come to care about the characters, you really are. Your heart's beating a little faster as he's powering up his atomic breath. You don't want to see those characters get uh, vaporized. Um, but then, you know, they so they defeat him uh, at first and you get all of that like emotional release of like, yeah, OK, they beat the bad guy. But you know that, you know, as the rest of the franchise has showed us, Godzilla always comes back. Yeah. So my two favorite parts of the film. The first one is the first time when you hear him roar, which mm. you can see in the trailer. That was awesome. Yeah. Because I, I sat in like the AVX theater, so it was super loud. And it was right. actually quite terrifying. My second part, favorite part was like sort of like in the jaw sequence where he's hunting after the fishing boat. Yeah. And they start dropping mines and there's one that's stuck in his mouth and they they blow it up and to see him like recover his flesh when it's blown off yes. was really cool. Yeah. And I I thought the entire sequence was was really well done. Um considering how small the budget was, this was quite a feat. Although I'm not sure if cheap labor had anything to do with this. <laughs> Yeah, that that I couldn't speak to. I mean, I heard one budget figure I heard was about fifteen million dollars. Um, I know. These are like, I mean, what the heck? These are incredible VFX for that kind of price. Um, so I'm uh, very impressed by that. I know the director. He's worked a lot. Uh, he's done a lot of animated stuff. Um, and he's a former VFX uh, supervisor himself. So he would. He's ideally kind of experienced to try to get the most out of the VFX that he's doing. Um, so all of that makes sense. But I, yeah, I mean, I, the characters, I, I like the protagonist more than, than you did. I, I thought that, you know, there's a world in which this movie works as just a post-war melodrama without Godzilla there at all. You know, if like, if this wasn't a kaiju film at all, like you could, you could see a version of this movie working where the characters are strong enough. The drama is strong enough where if there was no external threat, if there was no natural disaster element, this movie would still work as a movie. And there's very few Godzilla movies that you can say that about. Almost all of the American ones, for all of the things that I love about them, <laughs> the human characters in them are just a brief thing to cut to as like a way of re- relieving the audience from the action scenes with Godzilla. They really do not matter at all. And that's <laughs> that's a stark contrast to what we get in this one. Well, I was going to say, like, it really is filmed like a movie straight from the 80s. So... The screen wipes are very Star Wars-like, 
I thought that was really fun to watch, just the the fades and the ins and outs. Um, it did feel sometimes that they were separate scenes kind of cobbled together, but I didn't mind that mm, as much. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to point out is when there's an actual, when Godzilla actually fires his atomic breath, um, one of the main characters, the woman, gets basically blown away. Yeah. <laughs> and then she shows up at the end of the movie, just bandaged, just sitting nicely in a hotel bed. And I kind of saw it coming, too, when he got that final telegram. And I was like, there's no way she survived that. There's no way anyone could have survived that. I thought yeah. that was just really unrealistic and kind of funny. But I, I do think you should also not take these films too seriously and... Um, obviously the action is great and it's really intense but um, there's a bit of playfulness in it still that I like yeah I would think I would have like I ended up giving the movie four and a half out of five I mm. my, I would probably have given it a full five stars if the if the woman hadn't survived I think the the drama <laughs> would have hit a little harder because you misogynist how could you I'm not gonna give this movie full marks because the female character survived you're gonna get canceled, Robert. Well, we'll see. But like, the, I just like you know the, the the rage and the fear that the guy expressed when he realized that when he he thought she was dead. That I mean that hit me pretty hard. Um, and the mm-hmm. um the way that she died was also very evocative of like a full on nuke. You know, that's how a lot of people died in Hiroshima was being like buffeted around by the the air blast mm-hmm. from the the bomb going off. So that was that was, there was an off, a weird aspect of like authenticity if it makes sense to to the, to that. But then there was a funny moment actually in my screening when it was revealed that she was alive and somebody sitting a few rows up behind me uh gasped and said, "She's alive?" <laughs> and everyone in the audience laughed. They, they were kind of taken out of the moment. <laughs> and I don't know how the how the guy meant it like if he was legitimately surprised and happy that she was alive or if he was just being sarcastic Um, yeah i would i thought i would think sarcastic yeah but so that that was just a funny little thing that happened um no yeah i would i mean it's not i don't think it's going to be running in theaters for a whole lot longer it first opened uh beginning of december i think in north america so i don't even know if it's in theaters yeah um it's still playing here in in toronto for the next couple of days but uh, it probably won't be around for much longer after that so uh, unfortunately, people have kind of missed the chance to see it, like you saw, said, in like a, a room with like really big sound, really big um, screen and the kind of the way that it, it's ideal to see it. But uh, if you do see it come across the streaming services or, or if there's a Blu-ray that comes out, then uh, I'd be recommending everyone who has a taste for for this kind of movie to go and see it. I think it's a strong recommendation. And, and like I said, no Godzilla movie is a Godzilla movie without the original Japanese theme. Is that the first time you heard it, by the way, like in a film? No, they used it. Um, uh, they referenced it a couple of times in some of the the American, like the legendary. Yeah, yeah, like uh, they sampled it, but they, they didn't sampled it use but it like, as a theme. No, yeah, they, they 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 did a remix or something on it. So I mean, I'd heard it before, and I I okay, you know, all of that. So I I knew it when it was used here, but obviously here they use it in its like original. Mm-hmm. Uh, orchestration or whatever so there's no funny business being done with it i'm curious now like what direction do they go with a sequel because do they do they just bring godzilla back in basically the same format where he he just tries to destroy tokyo again and the another group of humans have to band together or do they start kind of following the same pattern as as all the other godzilla movies where 
it's not enough to just have Godzilla as the only force and you have to eventually bring in another kaiju for him to fight. I think it's the second one. And, you know, if that's the way they, you know, by that, by doing that, you obviously move the sequel further away from all of the dramatic stuff that works so well in this one. All of the symbolism dealing with with like Japan as a country and all that stuff that we've, we've talked about. Um, and then the series becomes goofier because you just can't have two. It could. It could. But I mean, I, I'm still there for it. I still love it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's earned enough um, street cred, for lack of a better term, for me to go see a sequel no matter what they do. Speaking of sequels, can we talk about Aquaman 2? Yes, please. <laughs> okay, so uh, do you want to start or do you want me to go first? Um, you can intro it, I guess. Like, yeah, should we talk about how, like, should we start off by saying how this movie had very little marketing and felt like, you know, it was being released as like a contractual obligation and not. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's because the dates kept getting pushed back, right? So. Let's say you have a hundred million dollar budget for marketing. Mm. Well, if you use it all, like say twenty million of it in the months leading up to it, but then you get pushed back. Mm. But then you have eighty million left over a longer period of time to spend, right? So I think by the end, with all the stuff that's going on, you know, with DCEU getting canceled effectively, with the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp thing going on, I think they just they just figured, you know what? Let's forget about the marketing. It's probably going to bomb. There's no sequel anyway. So let's just, you know, get this out the door and be done with it. I'm going to kill Aquaman. Even if I have to make a deal with the devil to do it. Free me from my prison and all my power will be yours. It's sad because obviously... For all of the it is sad. for all of the movie's faults, which we'll get into, obviously, um, some talented people worked on it, and Jason Momoa has mm-hmm. obviously been very vocal about how much he cares about the character and how much fun that he and the other people have in making the movie. So you know you have to applaud them for for those aspects, but still, I mean, God, this was such a uh, <laughs> like just an not an unple- not an unpleasant experience, but man, boring as hell. Um, I, I'm with you. It, it did feel boring at times. So I, I think this is the problem. I think the general premise and the plot of the movie is really good. But I think the execution is awful. I think having two characters who are polar opposites go on an action adventure is really cool. Yeah. yeah. I think I think having Yahya Abdul-Mateen as a villain is really cool. I think them fighting like this sort of lost kingdom and then involving all the other weird sea creatures that they introduced in the first movie is really cool. Mm. I think the end twist of, you know, Aquaman not necessarily being the focus of the villain, but just the bloodline of the Aquaman character and the whole like royalty thing. I think that was a really cool concept. But it's just, it's all over the place. It's scattered. Yes. Some of the jokes don't make any sense. Uh, some of the characters pop in and out. Um, Amber Heard's character was actually in it a lot more than I thought she would be. Yeah. But she also doesn't serve a big purpose either. No. So so I'm left wondering, well, did they cut her out because of the whole legal thing that she was in? Or was it because her character is really unnecessary? <laughs> yeah. And of all the you know, great things about this franchise. And there are, I think, quite a few. After I finished watching this movie, I actually thought Patrick Wilson was the best part 
to an extent. I mean, yeah, he, I mean, they give him the most to work with in terms of like character arc because the, he's on a, a version of a, of a redemption type story. Well, yeah. And, and the other thing I want to point out is instead of seeing Aquaman, instead of seeing Arthur Curry, I saw Jason Momoa on the screen the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't buy the fact that he was Arthur Curry because I, to this day, I don't know who or what Arthur Curry is actually like. I just see Jason Momoa pounding his chest, you know, screaming, making stupid jokes. And that's about it. Like, you take his character from Fast and the Furious and put him in here. And I'd be like, they're kind of the same, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, they try to build this fatherhood angle in this movie because he, his character and Amber Heard's character have had a baby. And um, it's supposed to be like, you know this story of responsibility and you know he's he uh, him talking about he how he never wanted to be king of atlantis but um he's finding finds himself with this role but he would uh, he's always been divided between the land and the sea and you know he he could imagine a world where he just gets to be aquaman and he's happy to let orm his brother be king again because he doesn't like the politics mm-hmm. or the um you know bureaucracy of running a kingdom um so there's those things are all sort of gestured at, but they're also gesturing at the whole climate change thing. You know, there's this vague kind of proclamations about how, you know, the... Aura Calcum storyline didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah, they say things like, oh, this is the, the, all the humans are bad and the humans are the ones who are uh, fouling up the atmosphere and making life difficult for the people in under the ocean but then they're not wrong they're not wrong but then like <laughs> then there's this stuff about oh there's this uh, evil force of skeletal atlanteans who are actually doing way worse and they're burning this oracalcum stuff that um you know yeah, is, that that has I, a way bigger impact on climate change and we have to stop yeah. them you know and they, they they become the stand-in because you know we i guess they didn't want to do the same story as the first aquaman where uh orm was going after the surface world because he felt they were polluting the oceans um so they had a new villain or something and like by the time we get into the nitty-gritty of the plot where um yaya abdul mateen's character black manta is he's become enthralled with this ancient sorcerer king guy who has built him this fancy volcano base and they're polluting the atmosphere with this burning stuff and uh, Aquaman and Orm come in and they blow the place up woohoo big middle of the movie action scene and then I thought the movie was going to end at that point and then it just kept going (laughs) because they hadn't even found the lost kingdom of the title yet so then they had to go down under the ice sheet in the Antarctica and go kill that guy and it just felt like so like like you were saying just very scattered like it felt like the volcano scene should have been at the end of the movie and the lost kingdom portion should have been the middle and uh, it didn't seem to matter that the villains plans were getting interrupted because they just could hop in their submarine and go off and do something else and the the rising and falling action, you know, that the actual narrative just felt so piecemeal. For as good a character as Yaya Abdul-Mateen is, they did not give him a good character to play. No. He played a character that had no agency at all. No. Even though Black Manta is one of Aquaman's greatest villains. And I thought um, Black Manta could have been so much cooler. I thought his death was pretty cool, actually, how in the end he refuses uh, Aquaman's help. I thought that was a very interesting take. Sticks with his principles, I suppose you could say that about him. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, like I said, uh, so much of this movie takes 
uh, takes place in a forest or, or a desert. Yeah. And I'm like, isn't this about Aquaman? <laughs> and uh, I just, some of the, the henchmen in this just really bother me. Even Randall Park's character kind of bothered me. I, I don't, I didn't find him good comic relief. I mean, the only comic relief came from John Reese Davies as the, yeah, uh, the Brian the, King, the Brian King. And he was in it for what? Three minutes, maybe? Yeah, a couple of lines here and there. and like, Yeah, and like I said, Patrick Wilson as the literal fish out of the water character, I, that was the best part. I, I said this on Letterboxd, too. Like, you know that you're bored in a movie when you start thinking about the villain's HR department. <laughs> and by that, I mean, I, I found myself partway through this movie not really paying attention to what the characters were saying, but thinking like, wow, it sure was nice of that ancient sorcerer king guy to make a whole bunch of like black leather outfits for the bad guys goons to wear um uh, who are these people anyway that work for black manta is he paying them where's his money come from you know what do do they get paid every two weeks like you know just these yeah again it's it's very silly none of it makes sense but i will say though i gave this movie three out of five because there are legitimate parts where i actually enjoy (laughs) it was it for you was it like character moments that that got you up there because i couldn't do three i had to do two and a half out of five i, I couldn't get to three. Oh, really? <laughs> one of the rare times i scored higher than you um just the overall creativity of certain things you know like the character designs and the whole world even though none of it made sense um i just thought some of it was really cool um i do think it has redeeming qualities it's just it's missing the cohesiveness and the sort of flippancy i guess for the first one it becomes a little too self-important sometimes yes and i just i hate it when key characters become enchanted you know this was the same deal in suicide squad where i think it was the enchantress or something who was possessing people oh or whatever. yeah yeah and it's just it, it's it gets pretty dumb you know and it, it makes characters very shallow yeah because then like you know the VFX department just puts a glowy kind of effect over the character's eyes. And I know they're like, Oh, I'm not myself anymore. And, um, I know, you know, it, I, I will also say on the topic of VFX, like generally it looks fine in this movie, but you can tell that they generally, were, yeah. they were cutting corners in certain shots and, uh, really at the end, actually, in one of the big moments after the climax, you know, when the bad guy has been defeated, um, they were standing on that iceberg and it looked to me like they were, CGing Jason Momoa's face onto a stunt double's body for some of those dialogue <laughs> scenes on the iceberg and it looked bad like it looked like his face was kind of misaligned with the uh, with the stunt double's head and I'm not for 100% sure that that's what happened but it just looked like that to me and uh, who knows how it was done but um, I thought the worst CGI was the forest oh yeah like and the creatures yeah. in the forest, the bugs, too. Not very inspired. I, I actually missed that octopus friend that they had. <laughs> I thought he should have had a bigger yeah. role. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I, I totally get where it's going. I think it's kind of sad that it ended yeah. the way it did. And, like, James Gunn found himself in a position where he had to, like, he had to kind of cheer the movie on as the new, like, creative head of this studio with, uh, you know, fully knowing that none of the movies that come after this are going to be narratively linked to it um so i i really wonder what the original draft of the movie was like the story wise because it definitely felt like a lot of people had their hands in this right so yeah yeah trying to come up with like some sort of uh ending for the franchise that isn't really an ending or Mm -hmm. you know almost like they wanted to leave the door open in case 
the new things that come afterwards suck and they want to say, oh, Jason Momoa will be back as Aquaman. Actually, I want to say one thing, and I think this is a huge credit to Aquaman 2. It did not tie into any of the DC superheroes. True. Yeah. I think that's a huge credit, especially in superhero films where they're always teasing something or referencing something else. This is still pretty self-contained. Yeah, and the first Aquaman was kind of like that too. I mean... Uh, yeah, yeah. I think there's something to be said about that. Yeah, I agree. I It can get a little tricky sometimes because when you have some big like event that's affecting the entire globe and you know that there are other heroes out there who would theoretically get involved... That's when it starts to get a little weird. Like I think about the 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 moment that pops into my head was uh, Marvel's Eternals movie, where you've got like this Titan guy whose hand is coming out of the Earth and is turning into stone, and like you know everyone on Earth is freaking out. Oh and, yeah. Um, and like I'm thinking, but and you're like, where's Iron Man? Yeah, where's <laughs> where's literally anyone? And uh, it's moments like that that kind of like break break the immersion a little bit. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, speaking of immersion, like we're going to have to talk about this movie in length because I think there's a lot to unpack. But Rebel Moon from Zack Snyder. Yes. I find warriors to fight with us. We might stand a chance. We're searching for soldiers for a fight against the mother world. I could help you. A small fee, obviously. Do you want to start? Uh, yeah, I'll start. Um, so Rebel Moon, um, this, as far as I know from what I've read, began life as a Star Wars pitch. Mm -hmm. Zack Snyder had wanted to do a Star Wars film. And of course, Lucasfilm has been teasing over the years since the, the Skywalker saga ended. They've been talking about all these different directors that they want to bring in to make star wars movies and they've talked about having ryan johnson do a trilogy they've talked about having uh db vice and um uh the other guy from game of thrones benioff, benioff uh, david benioff come in and uh, uh make a star wars movie uh taika waititi patty jenkins wanted to make a star wars movie and none of it has ever really come to fruition and so i guess maybe Zack snyder was looking at what lucasfilm had been talking about and said hey I, i've got an idea for a star wars film and he, I guess, pitched it and somebody there probably saw what he was putting down and said, this isn't really Star Wars. I mean, it's obviously heavily inspired by, by the original Star Wars, but other than that, it's very different. Um, <laughs> I would argue that the sequel trilogy is not Star Wars, but okay, continue. <laughs> but anyway, I guess, uh, you know, Zack Snyder took that feedback and he, he I mean, he went to Netflix uh to get the funding for this and uh, Netflix was more than happy to toss him another couple yeah. hundred million dollars for, uh, for something. They need IP. Yeah. And you know, I guess army of the dead was a decent success for them. So they were willing to reteam with him on this. Um, and they, you know, they threw a lot of marketing at it and they, uh, I mean, I remember the weekend of this came out, like at least for my copy of Netflix, when I opened it up, like Rebel Moon took over the whole screen. It wasn't even just an option amongst all the others. It was like a big, like they were really, really heavily um, favoring it on the screen, encouraging you to click on it. Yeah. You, you can't say that they buried it or that they, they mismarketed it at all, but what a thing for them to take a swing on because- this movie is equal parts Star Wars. Um, there's a bit of Lord of the Rings in there. There's obviously heavy influences from Warhammer 40K, which is um, 
a I mean, it's a tabletop role playing game that has, you know, a very rapid fan base with strong aspects of like really dark sci fi and, and fantasy as well. So uh, lots of lots of influences from all of those franchises and very little else. It's just all it's a movie that wears its influences on its sleeve <laughs> and you just spend your time watching it being like, yep, I recognize what other thing that's from. Yep, I recognize what other thing that thing's from. And like the characters are amazingly one dimensional. They <laughs> <laughs> like you're like, oh, that's the Han Solo guy. Oh, that that lady is sort of like an Asian Jedi, but uh, also fighting a spider woman. Um, wait, that spider woman has breasts. Why? Who knows? Um, you know, and it's you know, the movie hops around from planet to planet. Some of uh, some of it. Um, some of the planets and the production design looks fantastic. Like you can see the money. Tr- you really think so, right? Eh? Like okay. some. We'll have to discuss that. Like, not fantastic in the sense of like necessarily well executed, but the idea behind it, it looks like, uh, like there was one planet that they went to that was just like all big floating white pillars with like black void in behind it, and they end up the bad guys end up blowing it up, so it's not around <laughs> for very long, but. But I remember thinking, I was like, wow, I just, some of the planets just look cool. But I mean, they're still derivative as hell, but at least they look cool. And you're kind of like, for 30 seconds, you're like, whoa, that's a cool, like, sci-fi backdrop that I can put on my computer. Um, you know, that, that's kind of the, how deep it okay. is. So I was really curious about your letterboxed rating for this film. And I believe you gave this one and a half, right? Um, yeah, I think you, so. Would you? Okay. Uh, I will double check this while you're talking. Okay. So I gave this one star. So I will first off just say that I'm an unabashed fan of the Snyder Cut. Yes. I will defend it to the death. And by all accounts, Zack Snyder is a great guy to work with. I think movie studios love him because he seems like a nice guy. doesn't go over budget. doesn't cause a lot of drama. But Rebel Moon is the most unoriginal god-awful science fiction i've seen in about a decade (laughs) there is not one original idea in this it is Zack snyder left to his worst tendencies Mm. plus every other director's worst tendencies rolled into a film that is both uninteresting unoriginal and unexciting yeah it took me two separate viewings to get through this movie that's how bad it was yes Oh, this is what so I. So let's let okay. This is what I was hoping for. I, I'm been I've been hoping to talk about this with you for a long time. Okay, so let's start off with just the overall sort of like aesthetic. So everything Zack Snyder is washed out in this sort of orange, burnt orange sienna. Yeah, I hate that look, especially in in a film that's set in space, where I prefer you know different worlds or even just emptiness and blackness of space Mm. like if you look at star wars films so much of it is just like a big starship on a black background yes and it just looks majestic and it looks so cool and we start off with his really uninteresting character played in my opinion quite painfully uninterestingly by sophia butella yeah she is your typical hero who has some sort of you know, storied past, but was shamed into exile and find some sort of weird reason to get back into it. In this case, it's to prevent the gang rape of some innocent farm girl living on the planet that she chose to hide out on. Right. 
And okay, fine, fair enough, I get it. But then her sidekick is this really also uninteresting farmer who makes the most baffling decisions that yeah. keeps getting people into trouble. Yes. And and she's lacking a mentor of some kind. We're, we're, so we're introduced to this really beautiful droid that actually seems more human than droid. Like if you look at the moments, movements and you compare that to C-3PO, it's like night and day. At least in Star Wars, the droids move like droids. It's robotic. Mm. There's at one point where the droid in, in Rebel Moon sits on this rock by the river and he like adjusts himself as if to get in a more comfortable position. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, like, no robots do that. Like, they pick a spot and they sit in it. They don't adjust themselves to get more comfortable because they're robots. They don't feel anything. Yeah. But anyway, he goes on this long narration. So he's in there at the beginning and he's out there at the end, but he doesn't do anything in between. And then they do this, like, seven samurai thing where they go off to these planets for w- without any real logic, by the way. No. Um, and meet these random characters that they recruit. I don't know why they go see Blood Axe. I don't know why they go see Titus. It's not exactly made clear. I don't understand why they go see Nemesis, who, by the way, has basically two lightsabers. <laughs> yeah. Again, like the 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 uh, you see exactly where he's plucking everything from, and it's so it's so um, obvious. It's so like nondiscreet how he's borrowing. Mm. It it. Well, it's very in your face. It's very obvious and it's very, it's almost as if, it's, as if he's paying homage to it, but instead of, you know, sort of rethinking it or repackaging it, he's just copying it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a difference between homage and, and just straight out theft, you know? Yeah. And I, again, like Charlie Hunnam's character is not interesting. There's there there's weird reasons they get into stuff. The, the battle sequences, by the way, are also very derivative of Star Wars because the bad guys can't shoot shit. They're supposed to be very threatening space Nazi types. And uh, they're, we're supposed to believe that they... Speaking of Nazis, their uniform is exactly a Nazi knockoff, eh? <laughs> like, why is Ed Scrying wearing a necktie and a shirt? Yeah. When this is in another galaxy in space. And that goes back to the aesthetic that I was going to talk about. I don't find this visually appealing. I think it looks great. Like there's certain sequences that look like a painting. Yes. But one, there's too much glare, which I bet he stole from J.J. Abrams. (laughs) There's too much slow-mo, which he stole from himself and Michael Bay. And and I think just in terms of the overall design, you know, the weapons, the the clothes, the clothes look like they're from ancient Rome. Yes. The spaceships aren't very memorable. I have a hard time reconciling the two. They use horses to harvest grain. And it's like, in a sci-fi movie, I feel like no matter how poor you are, I feel like a certain amount of technology is already baked into your living, your day-to-day life. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some sort of like logic to it um, of like, if you're living in a universe that has that technology, it, like you're, you're right, like you see that in Star Wars where... You know, they they harvest moisture on Tatooine, but they're using like fancy tech to do it. Fancy by our standards. Yeah. And even if it's robots, at least Luke Skywalker has really shitty robots, but they're still robots, you know? Yeah, yeah. And like I will to to explain my interest in like the production design, because we're talking about it. Um, you know, I think the the design of the costumes and the weapons stood out for me because it, it did have that aspect of like medievalness to it and like 
a, a little you, bit. And you and you don't and uh, this is where I think the Warhammer stuff comes into like I, I'm not I'm not a Warhammer fan I've never played the game or, or I don't really know a whole lot about it other than like the Coles notes but I do know that that aspect of like medievalness comes into Warhammer and so therefore it makes its way here and there is something interesting to me about a far flung futuristic society that has those visual notes about it. And so that's what kind of caught my eye. And I was like, okay, they they have this kind of regalness to it. The, you know, the use of gold and silver and like, you know, very ornately sculpted metal and, and stuff. And all of that, you know, for that 30 seconds when you first see it, you're like, oh, wow, okay, that catches the eye. It doesn't look like, you know, random sci-fi stuff that you get in the bargain bin. Um, so it does look expensive and interesting, but when all it's doing is just like dressing up a really paper thin story, <laughs> it's, it's not really good for much. Well, also I was going to say the lore itself, it's not very interesting. There's no real backstory. No, I, I, to this day don't understand how big this conflict is or how big this universe is. You, you understand it to be big, big and bloodthirsty. Like they, they make you, they make it very clear that the bad guys in this are very bad and that they, you know, they uh, ethnically cleanse and completely nuclearly ravage every planet they run into. And the, the big bad who's revealed at the very end of this and will, I guess, be the, um, the main villain in the second part, which they are making, you know, he's he's depicted as a young man, just completely streaked in gore and blood and all of this stuff. So you're supposed to fear him. But I don't know if the well, time will tell if we actually do fear him. Well, and the other thing, too, is uh, this movie is really poorly acted. I'm sorry. But yeah. Oh, yeah. It's pa- like uh, I don't understand the accents. I don't understand the dialogue. It is so poorly written. The most hilarious sequence is they, they go to this planet to. I don't know if they're supposed to meet this guy or if they meet him by accident, but he's like kind of like a beast tamer. Yes. The guy who's half naked and, and basically enslaved. I think they went there to find him. I think they, they didn't just go there randomly. Okay. It was because Char- like it, Charlie Hunnam's character is just, you know, he's like a plot convenience dressed up as a person. Oh my God. He is so horrible. And so he just strides into the movie like, you know, they, they set him up like Han Solo in the cantina in A New Hope. That's... Mm-hmm. very obviously where the where the inspiration comes from and he's a smuggler too and he's a smuggler and he's a he's you know he quips and he he's a crack shot and all this stuff and he's like hey i got a ship come on board the ship uh, you don't have to pay me i'm kind of i was kind of already interested in being a revolutionary anyway so there's just no dramatic tension and he's like i know a whole laundry list of random people who are just waiting around on various planets to join our cause and so one by one they go to all these planets and the they go to the beast tamer i guess charlie hunnam knew the beast tamer guy was there and there's this extended scene which is uh, like <laughs> the beast tamer just jumping off of rocks and getting flung around by this by this hippogriff from Harry Potter um and there's a slow-mo sequence the owner of the basically slave farm i guess his deal was like okay this beast tamer character can run free and Tarek, i think his name was he can go on with you on your journey if you can get him to tame the bird yeah and i'm thinking to myself wait this guy was a slave the entire time and all he had to do was bargain to tame this beast and he could go free on his own anytime he wanted. Why didn't this happen earlier? Yeah. Why didn't no one mention this to him? Exactly. But 
regarding Charlie Hunnam's character, so he ends up being a traitor. He betrays the main characters. Yes. Now, the problem there is there is no sort of dramatic sort of turn is because there's no hint about it. It just kind of happens. And then when he does make that turn, he actually just does it through exposition. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like... It, it, again, he got a walking plot convenience because uh, Zack Snyder needs there to be some betrayal in order for because the, the the good guys are flying high. You know, the the the, the hero character played by Sofia Batella has had no trouble recruiting any of these people. What, they're just waiting around for her to stride in and say, hey, do you want to be on the team? Yes. Great. And they hop in the ship and there's no conflict at all. There's nothing. And so and they're so they're miles ahead of the bad guy. And then, so the Zack Snyder is like, "Oh well, how do we get the bad guy to have a brief moment of uh, of advantage over the heroes?" Oh, I know, one of them is a is a traitor. Cool. And then when they go to see the blood axes, the blood axe siblings to recruit like an army. Yep. And they're like, "Well, how does a band of you know a dozen people take down a dreadnought?" And then Ray Fisher's character has this like rousing speech, like, "Oh, if we don't fight for these guys, then what kind of rebels are we?" And then like. 10 people out of their army of hundreds ends up following them. I'm like, okay, yeah. great. So you can't take down a dreadnought if you have like a dozen people, but apparently if you have 20, that's good enough. Yeah, apparently. Wow. That's, uh, well, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's like, really? Like these guys aren't really going to follow their leader to help these group of rebels? Like what kind of leader is this guy anyway? Now, granted, like half of them, the other leader, his sister, stays behind with them. Sure. Whatnot. But I just feel like this is the most ununified group of rebels I've ever seen. You look at Star Wars, all the rebels are unified. It's the Empire who's fractured all the time. Yes. And, well, I mean, it, it in that aspect, it feels like Snyder is holding a lot back because he knows that the real conflicts are all going to happen in part two. Yeah. And so, so he, you know, he's holding on to the sister characters so that she and her forces can, I guess, get the heroes out of a tight spot at some point in the second movie. And, and then you get aspects of that throughout the rest of the, the, this movie too. Like it feels, you know, he's withholding the true villain until the end of this one. He's withholding you, you know, here and there. Cause he's like, oh, I'm just setting the table for you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, well, that doesn't help me in this this moment watching this movie yeah. it has the aesthetic of firefly but half the interest because the characters are so poor yes and then it has the aesthetic of like the expanse but without the mystery or the intrigue or even the world building no exactly I, I i don't know what the redeeming quality of this film is really truly i don't i i feel like if you want to watch Snyder and his like artistic vision go watch something else because he does a lot of these like visual things way better than all his other films um there's rumors of a director's cut that is r-rated I and I'm thinking why is better well I don't know why they didn't bother waiting until that was ready because this what what is what is the advantage or just release that yeah that's what I'm saying like what's the advantage to them of releasing a pg-13 cut that's pulling its punches on like visuals because I guess like they're probably going to have a bit more sexual violence in the the R-rated cut. There's more oh cursing, God. maybe more more gore. It's already pretty gory, but maybe more. Really, I didn't find it that gory. Uh, Except for the final fight. Yeah, there's there's more blood and stuff. I don't know. I mean, um, the so if that's the true version, then why not just release that on its own? Forget about the PG-13 cut because it's not like 
Netflix cares about releasing this in theaters or making any money from a general audience. They're they're targeting people who are already like Snyder fans who are adults. Yeah. It is uh, rated by the MPA because it did have a brief theatrical run, I believe. So they needed to do that. But I don't know why they bothered with that is my point because they, you know. Oh. Well, I mean, theater money. Plus, I, I'm sure the experience is still quite different watching it on the big screen. Maybe. Um, probably just 10 times more disappointing because it's bigger. <laughs> But I'm not that looking forward to the second part. Yeah, now um, I now I don't know where I, s- I, I... I was constantly bored by this entire thing. And I, I've just seen so many better sci-fi films that were done for half the cost or with half the scope. Yeah, and I, I don't know how to feel about the second one. I mean, will I watch it just be so that I can see how it ends? I, I feel like that is going to happen. I'm not going to like it. I find myself a little sad that, you know, there's so much wasted... Is it wasted potential? I don't even know. I don't think it was wasted potential. I think it's just a poorly conceived project in the first place. I don't want to say rushed, but for a film that is so big and that had such a big budget, it feels like it feels cheap. And I I feel like that's the worst criticism I can give this movie is that it lacks that feel of a big, expansive sci-fi film, which is what it was set out to be. Netflix is looking for IP. This was supposed to be it. Zack Snyder talked about this film having like a huge world where they could have all sorts of spinoffs, other stories, video games even. And maybe that's it. I mean, maybe it's better medium, better story as a video game and not as a movie. Yeah, when you have characters that are this thin, I mean, you almost need something like first person gameplay to make them yeah and the player actually making decisions for the character to inject some aspect of like audience investment yeah or just the fact that the plot is so thin that it's more suitable for a video game like as you said it's just there's there's no sort of layers to it there's no intrigue to it and maybe they explain more in the second movie but then again if you're going to release this on streaming why not just give me the director's cut directly just like as they did with the Snyder cut you know, for forget about the theatrical version. Give me the version that you had a vision. Give me the four hour version. I don't care. It's on streaming. I can stop and start whenever I want. The only other thing that uh, that I noticed during this, though, is like it, talking about like Zack Snyder's like visual f- um, sensibilities. You know, he he's decided that he wants to shoot everything on like vintage lenses um, and he he keeps the lens like wide open when he's shooting. So like everything is in like super shallow focus and like the characters like the tip of their nose is is in focus or like their bit of their hair or something. And everything else is completely blurred out. I and, did like, notice he, that actually. He started down this visual road with Army of the Dead um, because he was using vintage lenses on that too. And I to me in this movie it makes everything look like it was it, it, they're like little plastic figurines on like a model set or something. Well, yeah, and, it looks very fake and CGI'd. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you're no one else is kind of doing that with their cinematography right now, and so I guess there's an aspect of interest in that on like a purely like technical level for me, but. It's it doesn't really carry much water. No, it's just because I'm distracted by how poor everything else looks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you know, so the main character, did you notice her gun? It was like a f- it. It's it's base. 
it's basically a, a four by six piece of block wood with a handle. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it was <laughs> and some little carving on it. It's just, it doesn't look very interesting. Yeah, very elegantly carved. Yeah, everything is very uh, like they're they're trying for it to look elegant. Like the the robot that you mentioned, who's voiced by Anthony Hopkins, is supposed to have all these like very elegant carvings all through the metalwork and everything. It's supposed to look like this ancient piece of work. And also, that robot takes three blaster hits point blank, and nothing happens to it. Yeah. He's either got a super great, super strong armor or those blasters stink. And also wearing that crown of flowers on his head is so stupid. It's, do you think that was a Miyazaki reference? It could be, but it's dumb. There Again, he's holding back on us because there's that robot is going to have a big role to play in the second one. You know, he's going to be he's either going to go into murder mode and like save the hero or I'm sure um, have some interest, some integral aspect to the plot where you know he uh, reveals some unknown secret about the murder of the the little girl or whatever you know they uh that girl's probably also not dead because they put a lot of emphasis on the fact that she can bring things back from the dead so she's gonna pop up and heal somebody that that's gonna you think so that's uh, I can see it. I, I feel like it's a bit of a stretch for me. But. So she only uses the powers once in a flashback, so they wouldn't bother to show that off if it wasn't so important in some way. I do think, though, that that main baddie has some sort of blood relation to the main character, just like Luke and Vader. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. He says that he found her on a random planet that he was committing genocide on. <laughs> Uh, I think he must have raped some woman and had a child from that. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, yeah, so there's some sort of blood relationship there. I, I'm I'm pretty sure of it. Yeah. But, I, I mean, we're just pulling, you know, plot twists and storylines from other sci-fi films now, right? So that just speaks to how little originality there is in Rebel Moon. Yeah. I just think, oh, what a what a wasted concept. What a... What a poor follow-up considering Snyder showed that he can create characters with layers and character arcs with with something as as stiff and, and you know bound by by comic book lore as uh, Justice League. And he's given free reign, and this is what he comes up with. I'm I'm a little disappointed. I'm actually really disappointed. Well, that's why I wanted to talk to you about it. <laughs> so yeah, I gave it one and a, one out of five stars. I mean, that's that's about as low as I I even thought about giving it one and a half to be honest, but it just it frustrated me so much. And I just checked, and I uh, I gave it two and a half if you believe it. And <laughs> I'm now that we've been talking about it, I want to retroactively pull it down. I won't, but. Oh, why not? It was so frustrating. And the, um, I think it was, it was just for me, it was the only thing that's raising that score up to a two and a half is just, so, this, like I was saying, the production design was like momentarily interesting when it's in the frame and then it's gone again. Um, so that's all that, all, all that it really has for me. Um, but I mean, while we're talking about movies with wild production design, uh, you haven't seen this yet, but mm. poor things. The latest from Yorgos Lanthimos. He scares me a little bit. <laughs> he, he should. I mean, this is the, this movie, like everything else he's made uh, in English, um, you know, with uh, The Favorite and uh, Killing the Sacred Deer and The Lobster. Um, this is a movie that is intended to make people feel uncomfortable. You know, it is there's a lot of material in here that is supposed to really grab you by the head and kind of like jerk you around a little bit and just be like, look at this. Like, this is intense. She's an experiment. Good evening. 
Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. But she is progressing at an accelerated pace. But it's got a great ability to use comedy to kind of um, break up those moments. And so there's a there's comedy and drama woven together very, very elegantly. And it's it's all around the central performance by Emma Stone as Bella Baxter, who is a woman living in this sort of steampunk esque um, version of uh, London. Um, she is a woman who has been brought back to life by a Dr. Frankenstein type scientist played by Willem Dafoe. Uh, His character's name is Godwin Baxter, but Bella calls him God for short. And so she always says, oh, I'm going back to God's house or God says this or God says that. Um, So he, because he has this, this um, impact on her life by bringing her back from the dead, you know, there's a duality there to the name, you know, a bit of wordplay that obviously has some symbolism to it. <laughs> um, but the the really creepy part about her resurrection is that she started out life as a, you know, 18th or 19th century woman who had committed suicide by jumping off of a bridge. And she was pregnant at the time. And Godwin Baxter was not able to bring both mother and child back. He was only able to take the brain from the baby and implant it in the body of the mother. So already on its face, very creepy concept. And so this baby's brain reawakens in the body of a fully grown woman and undergoes this kind of crazy accelerated development from like infancy straight up through puberty to adulthood in the space of like a couple of months. At first, this manifests itself with Bella being very childlike and, you know, not quite knowing how to operate her arms and legs and just sort of being very clumsy and uh, doing things that you would expect a baby to do. And then this develops into a form of puberty where she develops these really wild sexual appetites. And she um, so on, you know, on a purely like technical level, the movie is quite explicit. There's a lot of like uh, there's a lot of sex scenes, a lot of nudity in it so that. You know, for certain viewers, that might be a little much. Um, it might be awkward to see with your parents, depending on who your parents are. Um, <laughs> just a fair warning on that front. Um, but it's never, and Mark Kermode, um, uh, one of my favorite film critics, pointed this out. He said that, crucially, you know, you've got a, f- a lead female character with these sexual appetites, but the movie does not demonize her for it. You know, it's it has a very progressive attitude, a very sex-positive attitude about this, and you know, it's Bella Baxter seeking out sexual relationships for her own gratification. So there is something to admire about the way the movie treats that. And, but then, you know, the movie's not just about that because obviously she moves from the kind of like sex obsession of puberty to a more like intellectually stimulating kind of life where she starts becoming less interested in sex for the sake of it and more interested in learning more about the world and reading as much as possible and becoming this very learned individual who, you know, fully balances out all of the aspects of her personality. And so as this happens, her, you know, the childlike aspects of her uh, early life in Godwin Baxter's house start to fade away and she becomes a more fully formed woman. And, you know, through all of it, Emma Stone is just like, you believe her 100% of the time. It is just a, an immaculate performance. Um, 
And then all these supporting characters orbiting around her. Mark Ruffalo as this absolute cad of a guy who thinks that he can take advantage of Bella Baxter at first and whisks her away from her uh, her fiance um, for a uh, you know a, a life of hanging out in hotels and dancing and drinking and everything. And he thinks he has the upper hand at first, but then it's not too long before Bella Baxter eventually shows how much smarter she is than him, and he devolves into this like. A childlike figure who, uh, you know, is desperately in love with her for all the wrong reasons and but wants to ruin her because of how uh, she has one upped him by the end of the movie. Um, so, yeah, it's I highly, highly recommend it. Definitely one of my favorite movies of 2023. Oh, really? High praise. Yeah. Wait, it's 2023 yeah. release? Yes. Yeah. Came out in early December. Right. Yeah, that would make sense because it was nominated for awards. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it obviously, like I was saying, it has aspects of like explicit sex. There's also a bit of gore in it because of the, you know, the reanimation of a corpse bit, you know, there's a few dead bodies lying around that have been carved up for scientific purposes. And so, you know, not for the, not for the faint of heart on those fronts, oh, but God. I, I think the, the comedy aspects of it really balance it out well. Like you, you don't feel like it's not a, you don't feel filled with dread or anything except for a moment towards the end when um, Bella Baxter's original husband, the husband of the the woman who she was, is revealed, and he uh, that is a very interesting character uh, appearance because you he really puts the the um in, in he really drives up the stakes of what's going on in a very palpable way. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's the kind of thing that, like I said, maybe don't see with your parents at home unless you want to have some awkward conversations <laughs> but nevertheless highly recommend it okay all right well you didn't exactly sell me on it no <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with the whole like gore and, and stuff but well we, you know we've got a bit of stabbing of like an eyeball and there's some open chest cavities oh, see, and stuff yeah, okay see you're not selling it right now <laughs> I did see Killing of a Secret Deer. I mean, that one caught me off guard, but I totally enjoyed it. But again, not a movie I'd probably be willing to watch a second time. That's fair. I mean, I would say that Killing of a Sacred Deer has... Um, it, that is a far harder movie to watch than Poor Things because of Oh, the, is it really? Yeah, okay. because of the dread involved in the the decision that the, that the main villain character played by Barry Keegan, the, the decision that he puts to the lead characters played by uh, Nicole Kidman and uh, Colin Farrell. Like, that is a, the the moral choice that Colin Farrell's character is left with and the implications of it are so, like, soul-destroying. And you don't get anything like of that caliber here. Like, everything in Poor Things is elevated by the, the bright, poppy colors, the kind of crazy, fantastical sets, um, the goofy dance sequences, like there are so many things that are like elevating this material, kind of making it feel like fizzy and um, and exciting. So you don't get dragged down by some of the the more scary uh, scenes in it because those are just those are used for comic effect more than like um, horror effect. Okay. Okay, fine. I mean, I'll probably see it at some point. I just have to bring a sweatshirt with me so I can cover my eyes when <laughs> bad stuff starts happening. <laughs> see if you can find like a like an annotated Watt viewer's guide that tells you like, all right, these moments happen at these particular time codes and then you know to skip through them. <laughs> I wouldn't skip anything. Honestly, I just I'd be feeling very queasy if I ever saw it. 
but that's okay. I've seen a lot of films that make me queasy. I just, if I know if it's that, that it's going to be queasy. Yeah. If I know a movie is going to have moments in it that make me feel uncomfortable, I always prefer a bit of a heads up. <laughs> no more surprises for me anymore, except, you know, surprisingly surprised by how bad Rebel Boon was. Um, yeah. So I, well, I think that about does it for this episode, but we haven't really talked about our uh, top tens yet for 2023 because we've been trying to watch more stuff. I was really bad. I only watched like 50 movies in 2023, which is kind of low. <laughs> it's a, one of the lowest years for me in terms of watch count. I'm with you. I, I think 2023, maybe not as low as in some previous years, but it was. it's definitely one of the lower activity, I guess, film years that I've ever had. Which is not to say that there were bad movies. There were a lot of really good ones, you know, but uh, uh, yeah, just making time for them all. But uh, maybe in the next episode we'll do, we'll have watched enough that we can f- make our calls for our top 10. Yeah, no, it'll be a good time because it's award season too, like peak awards. Season. So like top, we'll do top 10 and maybe like worst five. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, I, I guarantee you Rebel Moon's going to be on the worst five. Oh yeah, yeah. Little preview there. <laughs> But until our upcoming top 10 worst five episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And I'm Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. The Extra Buttery Podcast is written, recorded, and produced by Jason Chen and Robert Snow. Thank you for listening and don't forget to rate and subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. And remember, popcorn is always better with extra butter.